HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You, of course, have turned in, have turned into, have turned into the Farm Report. That would be amazing. No, you've tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Every week on the Farm Report this season, we are exploring the the numbers, the analytics, the quantitative spaces that keep our food system ticking off air. I am, of course, the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network, and I am super excited. We've got a jam-packed show for you today. Um, at the top of the show, we're going to be talking with Eric Gustafson. He is the CEO of Coast Packing Co. On a topic I have to admit I don't know very much about. Um, we're going to be talking animal fats. Um, sourcing health benefits definitely super excited to tuck in with eric on that in the second half of the show we'll be joined by steve rosenberg of the scenic hudson land trust as we continue our prep for the american farmland conference harvesting opportunities this november 4th up in albany new york and then of course we'll round things out with the escape maker segment we're going to be talking with jake samascott of samascotch orchards Really excited to hear a little bit more about their farm runs. Uh, that'll be at the end of the show, so do not leave us. Now, without further ado, Eric, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Good morning from uh, Los Angeles. How are you? I am great. I am great. Um, so really excited to hear a little bit more about Coast Packing Co., a 93-year-old company. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Uh, we uh 93 years old, 94 coming up here at the end of January and 2016 coming up. That is amazing. Oh. Um, I so, so for folks who are not familiar, which I have to say is probably most of the folks listening, um, what is Coast Packing Co.? What do you guys do, and how are we used to kind of seeing you? Great. Well, thank you for asking. We are a... Uh, edible uh, render and refiner of animal fats and vegetable oils. Uh, the company has a, a long history in the meat packing and meat processing industry, uh, started by my great-grandfather in 1922, uh, originally as a full-line uh, meat packer processor, uh, bringing in live hogs and cattle uh, to produce various pork products, hams, bacon, as well as beef products, steaks, and whatnot. Uh, and uh, making lard and tallow were, of course, a by- byproduct of uh, of our business at that time. And uh, as history would have it, and as things go down the road, uh, our family got out of that side of the business in the early 60s due to economic uh, issues. Uh, and uh, my great-grandfather took a step back, reevaluated opportunities, and at that time we were one of the largest producers in Southern California of uh, fresh pork as well as uh, 
cured pork products, smoked pork products. And when we took uh, our production out of the uh, supply chain locally, a lot of other meat packers and processors that were smaller and not vertically integrated were able to benefit and pick up our business, but they didn't have a way to take their edible fat and uh, produce lard. So that's how we kind of got back into the making of uh, animal fat shortenings. Now, you said you're calling in from L.A. Is your, your facility is still in the, the Los Angeles area? Yes, that is correct. We, we've been in the same facility since the beginning, uh, 93 years ago. Uh, a lot has changed in this facility since then, of course. Yeah, so what, I mean, take us through it. Like, what does an operation like yours entail? Like, what are the primary pieces of equipment? What's the kind of footprint of it? What should we be kind of picturing? Sure. Well, picture lots of concrete and stainless steel as a, as a foundational piece, being a, a USDA-inspected facility uh, and have been since the inception of federal inspection uh, here in the United States going back into the 40s. Uh, has a lot of concrete, a lot of stainless steel. We're roughly 100,000 square feet facility. And uh, as far as equipment to produce, let's say, edible beef tallow or lard, uh, we bring in uh, raw fat and process it through our edible continuous process rendering system, which if you think about it, think, of, think about just one big giant melting tank. We take raw fat that goes up an auger and goes through a grinder just to break down the fat, uh, pieces of fat going into uh, the melting tank, and we're cooking at 180-plus degrees continuously, liquefying and melting any of the oil or fat and as well as the protein and to separate the protein, the oil, and any moisture, we run it through a mechanical uh, three-way separator we would call a centrifuge and that centrifuge is spinning roughly 2,000 RPM and as it's doing that continuously separating the oil to go one direction, separating the protein that's been cooked and then also separating any moisture because we're using steam uh, heat to heat up the uh, to heat up and liquefy the fat. So I, I feel like at this point in the show, some of my listeners might be like, "Oh, this is the farm report. Why are we talking to you know a fat renderer?" And I, I want to kind of get a little bit of a sense from you about the supply chain um, because you know I think folks when we think about um, pork, when we think about beef, we definitely think about, you know, pork chops and, and steaks and sausages and briskets, but we don't often think about the fats um, from these animals. So, you know, you mentioned kind of at the top of the show, the historical narrative around where your raw materials are coming from. And I'm wondering if you can kind of sketch that out for us now, you know, where are the fats that you're getting coming from and why is this part of the kind of food chain so important to, as a resource for, for producers and for the animals and livestock that, you know, we're uh, slaughtering to enjoy steaks, pork chops and sausages? Sure. Well, we do source uh, our raw material from all over the country. Uh, yeah, and locally as well, uh, we get we get fat from uh, local local slaughterhouses that are still operating in California. Um, we get fat from local what we call fabricators and steak cutters in the HRI side of the business that are producing steaks for hotel restaurant uh, food service essentially, and we bring their fat in, as well as we're getting material from the Midwest. Uh, we're getting it as, I mean, almost as far as uh, Louisville, Kentucky. There's a plant there that we bring in raw material from, and you know, to, to bring the whole aspect of one of the one of the sayings that my great grandfather used to have: "We sell everything but the uh, squeal and the moo." Uh, <laughs> and and uh, the, the the idea behind that is a lot of people don't tend to realize how efficient uh, meat packing and meat processing is from start to finish in terms of material utilization. Everything has a purpose off the animal. In our particular case, the fat we receive on the edible side, we can use it for food, we can use it for cosmetics, we can use it for soaps, we can use it for oleochemical manufacturing, we can use it for biodiesel. So there's a wide variety of uses for the edible side, as well as what's called the inedible side. And in some cases, meatpacking plants across the country have equipment that produces 
you know, inedible grade lards and tallows. Lard would be called choice white grease for for that sake, and then we would call it bleachable tallow on the uh, on the inedible beef tallow side. And those go into this certain functions on the industrial chemical manufacturing side. Again, oleochemical and polymers and soaps and and whatnot. So the, we like to we like to think we use everything uh, in our industry and do our best to do it in a responsible, sustainable manner. Of course. So if I'm at a, like a slaughter facility and, and animals are kind of coming through the kill line and they're being bled out and eviscerated um, and, and their hides are being stripped, um, then as far as like the collection of the, the, the kind of, you're getting just straight fat, so just the fat from, like, from pigs and from cows, or are there other materials that come your way too? We'll, we'll get the straight fat, and we'll also get the fat already rendered, similar processing that we do in our plant. Uh, some of the major meat packers across the country are also doing it in, in their facility, and then they'll load the already rendered lard or beef tallow into a rail car, which they'll ship to us, and we will f- further process uh, in our facility. Uh, rendering is one aspect of what we do. We also have uh, refineries in our in our plant that help to clarify the oil, clean it up, and bring it up to a, a high quality and standard for baking and frying. So when we're talking about kind of food safety in this space, I mean, you guys are, is the transferring of fat with regards to HACCP plans and temperature control similar to that of working with raw meat, or is there like a little bit more leeway there? Well, the, the food safety aspect is extremely critical, and uh, you have to obviously analyze your hazard analysis uh, in your plant and find your critical control points and fully understand you know, how you keep out pathogens, how you are able to keep out any other adulteration. So I would say it's no different than any plant in the country as far as how food safety standards are implemented in our facility. Uh, Of course, there are different levels of pathogen controls based on the type of materials that you work with. Of course, you know, as as we've learned in this country, ground beef and E. coli, uh, you know, aspects there, there's certain risks involved with that, whereas on the animal fat side, you don't have some of those risks, but you have other risks involved. And so food safety is extremely critical. Obviously, being a USDA facility, we have seven days, 24 hours a day, unannounced inspection. The USDA has their own office on site, as they do in every facility in the country that is a USDA-inspected plant, Uh, as well as we have... uh, uh, we're part of the Global Food Safety Initiative, uh, and under that you have Safe Quality Foods SQF or British Retail Consortium, BRC. We, uh, we work with uh, BRC. And that's, if you think about manufacturing in other spaces, it's kind of like having your ISO 9000 or, you know, that type of accreditation to have a third party outside of the U.S. government uh, inspecting your facility and holding you to uh, additional standards. Well, so I want to talk a little bit about kind of the the, the trendiness and or the nutritional aspects and kind of the rediscovery process that's happening around animal fats in just a minute. But before we get there, you know, you are at the helm, you know, fourth generation at the helm of this organization, at the, at the helm of this company, you know, responsible for the company's strategic direction and vision. And, and I'm wondering from where you sit, you know, what is the future of the fat industry and and I guess to put like a little bit of a pin in that you know getting a sense of um, if you can let us know like the the volume of produ- production that we're kind of like talking about and how uh, a company like yours kind of sits into what some might call like the industrial meat system versus the kind of movement of, of like smaller scale um, more direct to consumer, uh, you know, farmers or, or smaller scale slaughterhouses. You know, what is the role that coast packing company plays, and and where do you see that kind of moving forward? Well, the uh, the aspect of of how we play a role, let's say, at the smaller scale level, you know, coast packing transcends large and small types of customers uh, across the board. Uh, we deal with some specialty-based uh, uh, processors where, you know, for instance, we take uh, Wagyu uh, beef fat for Snake River Farms. 
and produce a uh, what they call their kind of waigushi, you know, American style Kobe beef tallow. Uh, we've done. We're looking at doing some organic lard for for some folks, and you know, that's kind of on the smaller scale of the spectrum. And you know, one of the things at our company, we really don't look at the size of the customer. We look at the opportunity to work with, with different customers and help them build their business and effectively, hopefully, build our business together in a partnership. And we look back at the history of our company. We are still doing business with companies that go back to the 20s and 30s since our inception. Uh, we have a, a local bakery here we've been selling since 1936. We're their oldest supplier uh, on, on shortening, essentially. And um, we, look at, we look at the small and the large, you know, collect is how can we how can we work together and build business? Um, you know, as far as as far as uh, you know that goes. No, yeah, that that definitely makes sense. Well, when I think about kind of uh, lard and beef tallow, I feel like you know you definitely are a little bit more familiar this day and age hearing about it in kind of ethnic cuisines. You know, I think people talk a lot about you know how McDonald's fries used to be you know fried in beef tallow. Um, what is, what is kind of like the scene, what is the market for, for lard, for beef tallow? And are you seeing a change in that space? We're we're seeing a change, you know, as part of your prior question too, is what's going on kind of in, in the world of, let's say, shortenings and oils. Uh, you know, ultimately we're seeing animal fats being viewed as a, as a viable solution again. And if you look historically going back 40, 50 years, and even further back than that, let's say, you know, lard and beef tallow were staples. Uh, you know, grandmother made uh, made pie crust with lard, and, uh, you know, lard was used in, in making bread, and uh, beef tallow, of course, frying french fries, not just in McDonald's, but, you know, you have Jack in the Box here on the West Coast. You have Carl's Jr. and Hardee's across the country. They all used beef tallow many, many years ago. And we're starting to see people, uh, you know, in, in the general public, the consumer, becoming more educated. You know, Nina Teicholtz, with her Big Fat Surprise book, has kind of opened up the eyes of, of people willing to listen and learn. And part of that whole paradigm shift has occurred with the whole discovery of artificial trans fats and the harm that they have and how they're a greater threat to uh, people's health with coronary heart disease versus what we perceived the last 20 years on animal fats and the link to saturated fat and cholesterol and all of all of that misinformation now that's becoming more clear it's it really isn't a link to that nearly as much as we thought uh, so we're starting to see a lot more acceptance of animal fats. And in California, the, the curve has accelerated more quick as a result of state legislation that was enacted back in 2008. Uh, as far as a bill being passed, everyone had until 2010 to be in compliance to eliminate artificial trans fats, uh, whether you were a small bakery or a restaurant or you know whatever type of concern you were using in the past partially hydrogenated vegetable oils. So that really opened the door, and people started looking at things with more of an open mind. And uh, there's really not a silver bullet solution, but animal fat certainly has a place at the table in kitchens and restaurants and bakeries as a result of all these changes. Is, is, are the, is the animal fat, is that part of like the paleo diet conversation? Do you know? Very much so, okay. uh, especially on the beef tallow side. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware that in some cases there's a greater desire to use a grass-fed beef tallow, and I think some of that is marketing, and some of that there is some there's certain benefits to that as well. Uh, I do have a lot of friends who do CrossFit, and uh, you know they've kind of ribbed me in, in, in a playful way about, uh, hey, you know, you really have an opportunity to uh, to capture some market share in the CrossFit side of things and produce some beef tallow and and sell it uh, into uh, into some of the gyms. And we've of course uh, had some fun talking about that. So, but along the lines, it really fits hand in hand with the paleo diet. Yes. Um, well, kind of, I, I was surprised to learn, like a couple of years ago, I, you know, went in for my annual physical and um, my doctor said I had low vitamin D levels and I'm one of the tannest white people that you've probably ever met. And I was like, man, so then I'm like, was really looking around for other sources of vitamin D and I was surprised to see 
um, lard listed as a natural source of vitamin D. Although I do suppose the amount of lard I would need to eat to really gain any nutritional benefits in the vitamin area is, is probably there. There'd be some cons that would outweigh the pros there. But when it comes to nutrition um, and and kind of that aspect of the the animal fats space, um, does your company? I mean, I know that you. Um, you, you know, you're very involved in the North American Meat Institute and kind of what's happening um, in that those kind of like industry organizations. When you're looking in the nutrition space, does that is that a role um, that you have someone on staff in your office or someone who follows those things? And, you know, you mentioned the kind of evolving science around um, what type of fats we should or shouldn't be eating. How do you professionally kind of engage in driving that conversation, that research, or the kind of public perception around animal fats? Well, it, it starts with uh, with us in industry and, and Coast Packing specifically. We we decided as, as a group within our company to become a thought leader and, and work to educate in that space and help people understand more about animal fats and, you know, recognize that they are, in fact, better for you, for you than we previously thought. As far as the nutritional benefits, you know there are there there are certain things you can highlight. Specifically, the the trans fat issue, which is one that has brought a lot of concern and confusion. Uh, you know, lard specifically has little to no trans fats at, at all. Uh, beef tallow has some naturally occurring trans fat, but the naturally occurring trans fat, which you can also find in other dairy products such as milk and butter and beef. You don't, you don't see any negative impact really from the naturally occurring trans fats. It's the artificial, man-made type trans fats that you find in, in hydrogenated oils or partially hydrogenated oils that are a concern. As far as the industry goes and our organizations, we all collectively look at these, not just in the North American Meat Institute, but also the Institute of Shortening Edible Oils, which I'm also a board uh, member of, and we're all looking as an industry together, you know, what is going on? What can we do to provide solutions? How can we properly communicate the various health aspects? And I would say the North American Meat Institute is really at the forefront of doing that, not just for, uh, you know, animal fats, but, but meat and protein and, and fats in general. You, know, have, you have to be very cognizant of how can we benefit the entire industry? We can't just benefit one or two members, of course, that are that are part of the, uh, the industry. So I think North American Meat Institute's been doing a fantastic job. Janet Riley over there uh, is always looking for ways to communicate. If you, if you look at uh, the Meat Institute's kind of different websites, you have Meat Myth Crushers and you have the Glass Walls Project. Uh, the glass walls project is basically, if you consider what that really means, literally, it's it's instead of trying to hide what we do in the industry, it's to share and educate and advocate what we do. Uh, there there are not any secrets per se as to how product is manufactured. Uh, you know, I know on on our website in the past we actually had a video plant tour, and we've just redone our website. And I'm sure we're going to be putting something similar to what we had in the past with kind of more modern updated uh, as that was done some years ago. And uh, really just to, to promote the transparency in the industry, which I think is very important. It helps people understand and, and take comfort uh, that, A, we're producing the food safely, and B, there's really nothing to hide at what we do here. Well, I think that you really hit the nail on the head there with regards to transparency being such a critical con you know, tool for consumers to understand, um, you know, what's happening and how their, you know, consumption choices do or don't reflect kind of their personally held values. And I know I'm going to get pushback from my listeners about the North American Meat Institute. When And the feedback I feel like I'm going to hear from people is like, you know, that is an organization for large-scale producers. It doesn't have the long-term health of American farmers or standards with regards to um, enhancing animal welfare practices. And I'm just wondering, what do I what do I say to people who are pushing back at me that, that are kind of like looking at an organization um, like that and, and, and saying like, those people don't represent kind of my values? Well, I think uh, I think that certainly can be something that people will will misperceive. I mean, I can speak from my personal perspective and opinion. 
I grew up, I've grown up in this industry and coast packing, uh, you know, has been a big company and then has retracted into a smaller company and, and has grown to be a larger company again. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, we're just a, a cog in the wheel of the entire industry. And I look at my fellow colleagues, yes, we do have larger companies, but we have more smaller companies, even at the smaller level, as you're, as you're, as you're making the example of smaller producers, um, you know, there is not, how should I put it, there's like, in a way, equal representation, let's say at the board level even, where depending on the size of your company, there's representation in certain sub subgroups across the board. So we look at the entire industry. We're not looking out for one large manufacturer. And there are certainly more smaller companies that are represented in the industry in North American Meat Institute than there are larger companies. And I think that's what makes our organization so great because a guy like me can be sitting next to the CEO of a large company, let's say Hormel, and then to my left you've got a smaller producer, and we're all here together to make our industry better at the end of the day. We can leave our personal opinions about our company and what we need to do back home to take care of business at the door and figure out how we can make our industry better, how we can communicate the types of issues you're bringing to the table right now, how yeah. people may perceive it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, until you're really in it, sometimes it's hard to really even, let's say, for me to even explain it to you. Living it, breathing it, doing it every day certainly helps uh, to alleviate concerns. Cause I can tell you, where we've come from, there's always been that concern about the larger guys, you know, and you get in the room with some of them, hey, you know what, they put their pant leg on one at a time, just like I do and everybody else, <laughs> and we're all looking at things. We all have the same problems, no matter how big or small you are, and we all want the industry to be vibrant and viable, and, you know, for me personally, I come in with, with an open mind to help make this industry better, because that's what my great-grandfather did, that's what my grandfather did, that's what my father's done. We'll do our best to take care of our business, but we've got to keep the industry viable and vibrant for the future. And that's not an easy task at times. Yeah, I, that's, you know, so, to put it lightly, I, I would fully agree with you. It is not an easy task. It's not an easy task to, uh, you know, understand from a consumer level either, which is one of the reasons that we do this show every week. Um, well, Eric, just about out of time, I know I do want, kind of want to get your thoughts on one final thing. I know that you are into drag racing. Um, <laughs> yes. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, have have you, would you look at, you know, fueling your vehicles with fats from Coast Packing? Great question. Um if we can find a way in the future, since it, usually it's done through biodiesel, um, you know, to make the kind of horsepower that we need today to be competitive, uh, it would be pretty difficult to fuel it with fats. But we do certainly uh, use the car as a marketing tool, and we put our corporate brands and the Coast Packing name and our Viva brand and various other products on there as as a marketing aspect. And, you know, one day we maybe will be able to find a way to use uh, uh, Powered by Lard as a slogan, you know, other than making it uh, anecdotally for fun. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. There, There's always new technology, and that's one of the, the neat things about drag racing is it's always evolving, much like our business and our industry. And I think it's fun to kind of draw those parallels and the different challenges that we encounter, even drag racing. And there's a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Papa Mike's Pizza. I know you guys are in, a, in the back of the pizza shop as well. Yeah. Uh, he, he's over on 20th Avenue in Brooklyn. There's a guy named Joe Dodonna, who's a guy I drag race with. So I'll give him a little bit of a shout, shout out. Shout out. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun because we get to meet people from all different walks of life doing the drag racing side of things. And we do, we do sometimes sit around with a cold beer and talk about fun things like, what, what if we tried this and talking about alternative fuels and stuff like that. I, I, I know there's been a, been a lot of fun discussions in the, in the automotive industry in general about that. <laughs> well, uh, final question. If I come over to the Gustafson household, um, how am I getting served animal fats? Great question. Well, I, I like to uh, I like to barbecue or, or broil steaks, and one of the things I'll do when I broil them is I'll keep some of the fat that cooks off, and then I'll take that beef tallow and I'll save it, and I'll use it as a as a finishing instead of butter on top of steak to provide that extra flavor to kind of soak back in. Uh, we'll 
We'll certainly use lard to fry Brussels sprouts uh, in the family, as uh, as well as using it for pie crusts and and some other traditional types of stuff. And on occasion, if I can convince my wife to let me fry some French fries, we'll use some beef tallow as well. Oh man! Well, I am waiting patiently for my invite here in Brooklyn. (laughs) Any time you're in Los Angeles, feel free to uh, give me a a holler and and we'll have you over for dinner and and we'll, we'll, I like to cook. That's uh, that's part of my, uh, it must be from my mom's Armenian heritage. We like to eat a lot in our family, so we're not shy about feeding. And usually if you don't take a second plate of food, mom comes over, puts her hand in your forehead and and asks if you got a fever if you're sick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Awesome. Well, if you guys out there listening want to find out more about Coast Packing, you can find them at www.coastpacking.com. Also on Twitter, they are at Coast Packing Co. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Aaron, it's my pleasure. And next time I'm in New York, uh, I may be knocking on your door for a slice of pizza. Oh, yeah. The invitation goes both ways. So come on, come on out. Um, yeah. All right. We are going to take a quick station break. And when we come back, we will be on the line with Steve Rosenberg from the scenic Hudson Valley Land Trust. Hang tight. We'll be right back. It's apple picking season. Join EscapeMaker.com and the New York Apple Association at the Union Square Green Market, Friday, September 18th and Friday, October 16th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. for the 2015 Apple Palooza Games. Go to the EscapeMaker.com pop-up booth for all your regional agritourism information and a chance to play apple-themed games like Giant Apple Themed Twister. You could win a bag of delicious apple cider donuts and fresh apple juice. Everyone will receive helpful information on where to go for pick your own apples this harvest season and a fresh apple grown in New York State. There's no better time to explore outside the city. Soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly and support your local orchard. Log on to escapemaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. We are joined on the line by Stephen Rosenberg. Stephen is the executive director of the Scenic Hudson Land Trust. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So the Hudson Land Trust, um, you know, your mandate is to protect and restore the Hudson River. So I suppose we should start folks off with um, a little bit of orientation to uh, what is the Hudson River, where is it, how big is it, and why is it in need of protection and or restoration? Well, thanks. So we we work throughout the Hudson Valley um, in the uh, 10 counties primarily from New York City up to the Capital District. And in... um, not just right along the Hudson River, but the uh, valley is, has got so many resources that are important to protect from the river itself to the incredibly uh, important nationally scenic landscapes. Um, and also in the context of this conversation, um, about 20% of the land base in the region is in active agricultural production, is farmland. And so we've been working for almost 20 years now uh, in partnership with other land conservation groups and with working farm families in the Hudson Valley to um, secure uh, that farmland that is so important to supply New York City and the region with fresh local food. That, that I, so why is it in the interest of kind of scenic, like help, help draw that line for folks who maybe aren't familiar with these issues as far as why farmland, like how does that support um, a healthy river, how does that support a, a scenic vista? Well, it, you know, we're about more than just um, the views um, and the, the river itself. We're about the um, entire regional landscape and what is um, uh, needed to make sure that it remains vital and healthy and a great place to live and work. And so a key element of the region's landscape um, uh, economic landscape, cultural landscape, um, uh, 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 part of why it's important to our um, public health um, is the agricultural landscape of the Hudson Valley. And so that's where it fits in. We don't look at uh, 
um, any one of these issues in isolation, but this is a tremendously important um, uh, slice, if you will, of the um, uh, uh, significance of the of the region and its relationship to New York City and to the way people live. Well, I th so I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head there, kind of talking about isolation and, and when we're kind of looking at a region or looking at different issues and we're looking so specifically at one component of things and not really thinking about um, a space as a whole, we, we maybe make decisions that we later regret. And I'm wondering if you can outline for us, um, what are some of the threats to this region and, and what are some of the successes your organization has had um, in kind of either mitigating or preventing um, further kind of damage to the region? How, does, how, how do you kind of evaluate whether you're succeeding? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, we do approach our work and um, the um, vitality and, and uh, environmental health of the region in a, in a holistic way, looking at not just um, the pretty views, although that certainly is an important part of what makes the region um, attractive to people to work and live, um, but it's um, environmental sustainability um, and uh, the balance between our um, uh, economy and the environment. So some of the threats currently that we're involved in include the you know, dramatic increase, for example, in the transportation of crude oil along the river and uh, in the river in barges, um, along the river in trains. Uh, that run through um, communities and along the shores of the river. And we know across the country there have been uh, a number of um, terrible incidents with the explosion of crude oil trains. And so we're working with partner organizations, um, elected officials and others, to try to um, reduce those threats and make sure that if there were ever to be um, an accident, that that could be contained as quickly as possible. We've been working with partner organizations on the health of the river, working to try to make sure that GE's cleanup of PCBs in the river is completed and is not left partially done, and a variety of other environmental advocacy issues. Our, our, um, for many years, our leading campaigns, though, have been around um, uh, uh, protecting the, the landscape, mm -hmm. um, uh, creating parks, converting former industrial sites into places that are more publicly accessible so that the people who live along the river have access to it, and then, of course, um, conserving the most important farmland in the region so that our supply of fresh local food and, the um, again, the sort of balance um, uh, between the economic uh, engines of the valley and agriculture and tourism are the top two economic engines and the public demand and public health need for fresh local food can be kept in place. We think a lot about the, you know, what are the key pieces of creating a sustainable regional food system, and there are a lot of elements there from uh, making sure we have um, effective um, uh, uh, and efficient uh, processing and distribution facilities and making sure that farmers have the marketing tools that they need and that public policies support their efforts um, and that um, the regional food distribution infrastructure, both in the city and in the valley, um, is put in place. Um, and we're also primarily keenly focused on making sure that the land um, that is needed for farm families to be able to produce food is there and is secure and that they have the resources they need to be able to um, um, produce food on it. Yeah, well, I love that slogan, I think, of, of American Farmland Trust, you know, no farms, no food. You can't say it any more simply than that. And I have to, you know, tip my hat to you guys, um, you know, according to your site that to date, Scenic Hudson has created or enhanced more than 60 parks, preserves, and historic sites, and has conserved um, more than 38,000 acres. That is a lot of stuff. Um, it definitely sounds like you guys have um, worked really aggressively and in a lot of different areas. Um, looking specifically at the agriculture work you do, um, I think that one thing that we talk about on the show is, you know, if there are different kinds of farms and different ways of farming. And I'm wondering, for your organization, how do you approach making decisions about 
um, you know, farms that you want to, or types of farming that you want to drive resources towards? Right. So we first started doing farmland protection work almost 20 years ago, and the the whole environment, the culture around farming at the time, and the public interest in fresh local food was nothing like what it is today. I think the entire region, of course, the entire country and beyond has has um, taken up interest in uh, fresh local food for public health, for nutrition, um, as a as a way of life. Thinking about the um, culinary culture and economy, all of these different things, um, the health of kids, um, in a completely different way. And um, when we first started this work, um, it was uh, um, uh, a matter of local farmers really uh, often looking back on their careers and not having a great deal of optimism for the future. And when we were conserving farms, um, it was often um, because the farmer wanted to retire and move to Florida or North Carolina, and we would hope that a young farmer or another farmer in the community might be interested in um, buying that farm and keeping it in production. That's changed tremendously. The way we approach it is through what we call the critical mass approach to farmland protection. So instead of opportunistically trying to conserve a farm here or a farm there, we've focused on individual communities where farming is active and vital and where the community wants to keep it that way. And in the first project we did in the late 90s in the town of Red Hook in not Brooklyn, but in hmm. northern Dutchess County, yeah. we worked with seven farm families to conserve 12% of the farmland and active farmland in that town all at once. And the idea was that you'd be creating a bulwark against the pressure of real estate development and fragmentation and rising land values and um, create for the farmers there the security that the farm next door wouldn't be developed, security for the people who lend money to farmers for their work um, to feel more assured in doing that, for the companies that sell equipment and seed and supplies to farmers, and for local officials to know that the farmers in their community have made a permanent commitment to agriculture. Over the years, as we saw the success of the critical mass approach in a number of different communities, and we partnered with um, other land conservation groups and government at all levels, um, we stepped back and looked at the entire region as a critical mass area and with the support of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation created um, a food shed conservation plan, which is really a first of its kind strategic conservation plan to protect a major metropolitan area's food shed. And we identified um, more than almost 6,000 farms, 730,000 acres of farmland in the 11 counties in the Hudson Valley north of New York City. And of that, determined that 89% of it was at risk, um, not wow. currently conserved. Wow. And so what we've been doing is working together with the other land conservation groups in the region and the um, agricultural community to um, and uh, government at all levels to um, take steps to implement this um, strategic plan. And we, in the plan, evaluate soil quality and farm size and the geographic relationship of farms to one another. Um, this past year in the state budget, um, Governor Cuomo proposed and the legislature approved $20 million specifically to conserve farms in the New York City Hudson Valley food shed as a terrific down payment on implementing the plan. And we continue to work with uh, the federal government through the farm bill, through local uh, and county governments who are funding farmland conservation efforts. And we are hopeful that New York City, which in many ways is the largest single stakeholder in its regional food shed, will invest in conserving the farmland that supplies it with fresh local food in much the same way that the city has been investing for almost 20 years to protect the land that it needs to secure its supply of clean water. And um, uh, so that is the strategy, sort of a long answer to your question about how we well, it's a big question. <laughs> farmland. Um, well, I want to kind of come back to how, um, you know, those of us like myself who are here in Brooklyn can be, um, you know, advocating and supporting the work that you guys do. But before we get there, um, 
You know, you do, you are an attorney by training. Um, you had practiced land use planning and real estate law prior to uh, joining the, the Scenic Cuts and Land Trust. Do you feel that your, your training, I'm, I'm curious like what your training as an attorney kind of brings to your work as an executive director of a Scenic Land Trust and how that's kind of adding value or shaping the work that you're able to do? Um, well, I think this uh, background and experience that I had as a practicing attorney before coming to this work um, has, is helpful almost every day. Uh, it's uh, real estate transactions and land use um, principles and relationships that we're um, working in. There are, there are many recovering attorneys in the land conservation um, world today, and I think um, uh, uh, the skills are highly transferable. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like I always try to kind of point out, because I feel like when folks are thinking about um, working in food, working in agriculture, um, there's... It, it can be a challenge to think about all the different ways that you can get involved and all the different skill sets that um, can really bring bring to bear um, some interesting perspectives and some really kind of needed um, technical know-how. Um, well, coming back to us here in Brooklyn, um, I know that you know you mentioned the the twenty million dollar designation from Cuomo's office. How do we as urban dwellers? Um, engage in these issues? I mean, what is our role? Obviously, I think you've really laid the groundwork that we are incredibly impacted by them, one, through having you know access to delicious locally produced food, and two, to have a space that is like lovely to, to travel and tour. Um, but, but what do we kind of do in an action orientation um, as urban residents to show that we care and support um, the work you're doing and, and want to be engaged in this type of uh, protection and conservation? Well, I think there's a tremendous amount. And I, th- I think the first thing is really just appreciating that relationship um, that the, the sort of sphere of the city extends well beyond its boundaries. And uh, if the public, if the city has... Um, demand and public interest in fresh local food, uh, it can't come from just anywhere. It has to come from the regional food shed. And so um, uh, taking steps to develop the economic relationships and make the investments um, needed to assure that is really what's critical. I think it's also um, tremendously important not to think about, uh, just as an example, you know, urban agriculture and community gardens as being sort of a distinct um, and separate interest from protecting um, the regional food supply. Um, they're totally related and interdependent and ought to be mutually supportive. And, and um, the more um, uh, people um, take a direct interest in local food and, and urban agriculture, I think the greater the opportunity there is for them to appreciate the relationship to the surrounding region. Karen Washington and I actually co-authored an op-ed piece that was published in Cranes, New York, um, a, a few months ago, which was just about that um, that point. But the most, perhaps the most important thing that people in the city can do right now is to the extent that they are in communication with their city council members um, and and uh, other people of influence, communicating that they appreciate and understand that if they want to continue to have fresh local food um, from the region, um, supplying green markets, supplying the other farmers' markets, supplying CSAs, supplying food pantries, um, and helping to support the city's you know, tremendous um, culinary economy, um, then it makes sense for the city to invest in conserving these farms and that those investments are not sort of locking up the farms. What they're doing is unlocking the true potential of those farms. You know, the city has passed two local laws, Local Laws 50 and 52, which um, help to support um, procurement of um, regional food for um, city, the city schools and, and other agencies. And the city agencies are allowed to pay a premium for local food, but the challenge is procuring a sufficient supply. And by, by investing in securing and creating a more robust supply, fresh local food. It's one way that the city can advance um, that um, policy. Uh, and finally, I'll just mention, you know, after Superstorm Sandy mm-hmm. and other um, major uh, disruptions, if you will, we've learned that um, 
um, all cities really need to diversify their supply of, of food. New York City has less than five days food supply on hand. And so um, after Superstorm Sandy, some of the only fresh food available in some neighborhoods was brought to the city by regional farmers who who um, are in the habit of serving New York City green markets and other outlets. And um, uh, there was a recent report done by the University of California, actually, which said that um, New York City could potentially secure as much as 30% of its food from farms within, it was either 100 or 150 miles. So I think there's a tremendous interest in, this, in the city in um, this issue. And um, uh, I think people in Brooklyn and throughout the city um, can be communicating that to public officials and sharing that information with their friends. So kind of my final question here, one of the focuses on the program this fall is, is really looking at um, more of a, a quantitative way of understanding issues in agriculture and trying to break down some kind of key measurements for different organizations and across different types of production styles. So I'm wondering if you could share with us for the Scenic Hudson Land Trust is there a key number for your organization um, or a key thing that you kind of keep um, a, a super close eye on and measure very carefully that helps you know kind of how you're doing? Well, um, you know, we're very outcome-oriented, and uh, we, we keep track of metrics. Um, for, the, for the food shed, um, what we think is a, um, an appropriate goal to set, not just for us but for all of the stakeholders in assuring that we've secured the long-term supply of fresh local food for the region, it is, sort of follows from our experience with this critical mass approach. The, I think I mentioned earlier that 12% of the active farmland we had conserved right off the bat in Red Hook, and today more than 60% of the productive farmland in Red Hook has been conserved as those efforts have extended and others have invested in them. And so for the food shed as a whole, we'd like to see a third of the highest priority farms identified in our food shed plan conserved over the next 10 years. That would cost about $250 million or about $25 million a year. But if all of the stakeholders, the federal government, New York State, the philanthropic interests, local government, and New York City are all investing, it's a very achievable goal. And that's, that's what we're going to be looking to as a metric for success in the years to come. Well, we definitely plan on being involved in supporting from our end as well. Steve, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. If you want to find out more about the work of the Scenic Hudson Land Trust, you can find them at www.scenichudson.org. You can also find Steve along with a ton of other amazing thinkers in this space up in Albany, as I said, on November 4th. Check them out, farmland.org. Tickets are still available. And definitely stay tuned into the Farm Report. We're going to be bringing you a number of kind of sneak peek interviews with some of the key speakers and stakeholders in this conversation so hang tight we're going to take a short station break and then we'll be back hi this is dave arnold from cooking issues and i'm here to talk to you about the museum of food and drink which is finally getting a brick and mortar space right here in brooklyn new york so the Museum of Food and Drink is opening the MOFAD Lab, our first laboratory and gallery space, where we will be putting on an exhibition called Making It or Faking It, the history of the flavor industry. It tackles a very important uh, topic, which is how the food system got to be the way it is now uh, as a result of the intervention of the flavor industry, how that happened. Get your tickets at tickets.mofad.org to come see the first exhibit ever of the Museum of Food and Drink at the MoFad Lab, brought to you by Infinity on 62 Bayard Street. All right, and we are back, and it is now, of course, time for the Escape Maker segment of the Farm Report. We are on the line with Ron Samascott of Samascott Orchards up in Kinderhook, New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, so it's great to have you on. Um, I'm super excited to hear a little bit more about the orchards. Um, I, I have to start with, though, I was so tickled to see a link on your website for farm runs. So can you tell us a little bit more about those? There's a, a local running organization that, that um, you know, once a year they have a, 
uh, 5K, and they have done a 10K sometimes where they run either a 5K or a 10K through parts of the farm. You know, it's a, a the 5K goes through the whole farm, the 200 acres where we have the pick your own. We we actually own more land than we do than we have for the pick your own business. So for the when they do the 10K run, that goes you know out of the pick your own farm and into some real back back hills and valleys and pasture land and things. And it's a, it's that, kind of a sprawling operation. Yeah, I mean, that just, I, to me, I feel like I, I am sadly not much of a runner, but um, the idea of, like, making my way through a through a, through an orchard seems like somewhat of a motivation. Um, well, you definitely mentioned the uh, you pick that you guys do. Um, one question I feel like I, I always want to ask people when I go for a you pick I wonder about having like a weigh in, like when people get there, you weigh them and then you weigh them before they leave just because I always end up eating so many apples while I'm on the U-Pick. Well, we've thought of that, but we've never implemented it. It's a, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's actually hard to eat too many dollars worth of apples. You know, some other fruits like blueberries or raspberries, it might be beneficial, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, you get pretty full on apples pretty fast. Yeah, all on just. I wonder, you know, for an apple-eating contest, I wonder what the upper limit. I feel like I don't think I've ever had more than two. How about you? Oh, I've, I've eaten quite a few apples in a day. You know, we have so many varieties, and when you ride out through the farm, you always try this variety, try that variety, try that one. We grow over 70 varieties of apples. Wow. So, there, so there's quite a quite a selection. They don't all ripen at the same time, but, you know, it ain't. When we do the farmers markets, we generally have at least twenty-five varieties of apples for sale. Sometimes more. So I feel like you know there is a, um, you know, you hear about when people are like, oh, what different types of apples? There's like you know baking apples and kind of eating apples and apples that like lend themselves well to different types of baking or cider apples. But um, it sounds like with 70 varieties, there might be an apple available for every possible mood. I could see an after-dinner apple, a lunchtime snack apple. I mean, what are some of your favorites? Well, there's a lot of apples that are really good all-purpose apples. And I don't know that I have any one favorite, but I do like a, a wide variety. And, you know, and I don't think there's any one apple that's going to please everybody because some people like sweeter apples, some like... Tartar apples, you know. Um, I personally, I, I don't know, I, I like quite a range of varieties. There's a couple of new varieties available now, Snapdragon and Ruby Frost. They're, they're from the New York State Apple Breeding Program, and they're both real good varieties. They're both crisp. They're sweet but a little bit acidy, too, so kind of pleases most people. Um, Honeycrisp is one of the most popular. Oh, yeah, everyone loves Honeycrisp. Right now, and most people do like that. That's one of our better sellers. Um, McCowan is an old, older variety. It's actually been around since the 1920s, but it, it, it's a very popular apple this time of the year. That's a Macintosh cross that, you know, it's crisp, it's a nice flavor, you know, sweet, a little bit acidy. Um, have you noticed um, kind of in the U-Pick business, I mean, are there things that you could say were like, trends in the apple in the apple world where like you know now consumers really like honey crisp like the kind of big crisp sweeter apples and and maybe you know in the 80s or 70s or earlier we had um different flavor profiles or not really i mean it's changed over time the you know we started pick your own back in the 60s so that's you know that's what 50 years ago now and the um Back then, we probably only had seven or eight main varieties. You know, Macintosh, Red Delicious, uh, Rome's, they were Golden Delicious, they were popular, Cortland's back then. And we still grow all of those, but, you know, there's so many new varieties. People, you know, some of the old-timers still want the old varieties. Macintosh, some people always want those. You know, it's a, it's a distinct flavor of its own. It's not as crisp as some apples, and it doesn't keep as well, but it definitely has a distinct flavor of its own, so there's always people who want those. And some people like them for cooking, some don't. It's an apple that gets real soft, but it doesn't keep its shape. A lot of the newer varieties will get soft, 
but still maintain the shape of the slice or the whole apple or however you bake it. Yeah, well, I feel like one of the interesting things that we talked about on the show um, last year around this time was the the kind of um, announcement of the first genetically modified apple. I don't think it's available for kind of purchase or consumption yet, but they were looking to develop an apple that wouldn't turn brown when you left a slice out on the counter. Um, right. That's, yeah, they've, they've been doing that with empires. And the primary reason for that is because... Um, the fast food chains like McDonald's are a, a big user of Empire apples in their kids' snack boxes, and they just wanted to be able to eliminate a step of treating the apples with ascorbic acid or whatever it is to keep them from turning brown. So, you know, some some apples naturally don't brown, but some do, and Empire is the one they like for the taste, but that's one that naturally browns. So they wanted it to not. Because Empire is kind of an in-between apple. It's not real sweet, not real tart. It's the one that that most people seem to like. You know, maybe it's not their favorites, but everybody likes it. Everybody tolerates it. Yeah, they're like, it's like kind of a good... It's like if you're going to the airport and they're only going to sell one apple, you're like, this one will right. please most everyone. Um, well, you guys also do uh, sweet cider. I mean, I know on the network we talk a lot about hard cider. But we, we haven't talked a ton about um, sweet cider, which is just, you know pressed apples. Um, what is the difference between cider and apple juice? Cider is usually just pressed and not really filtered to a, a fine degree. Juice is generally filtered so it's basically clear, and juice is almost always pasteurized so that it's shelf-stable. You, know, you can leave it at room temperature in a sealed container for quite a period of time. Juice uh, is not filtered to the same degree. When you let it sit for a while, you almost always get some sediment at the bottom of the jug or the glass or whatever. And it, it juice sometimes is pasteurized or else. We, we use uh, UV treatment, mm-hmm. ultraviolet light. Most bottled water is treated the same way. It, it kills any E. coli or anything like that, but it doesn't stop the cider from fermenting. So if you leave it at room temperature for a long period of time, it'll still ferment. And when it's pat, when it's juice, it's pasteurized. That doesn't ferment. That's you know, that kills pretty much everything that's in the cider. So I feel like the the UV treatment probably also maintains some of the kind of unique flavor characteristics that people want and and enjoy when they're drinking sweet cider. Right, because you're not heating the cider. When you pasteurize it, you're basically almost boiling it. You know, you heat it up to 160 or 180 degrees. With the UV, you don't do that. It's just a light that shines through, and it kills E. coli, but it doesn't heat the cider and change the characteristics of it. Which I guess also inherently means that like the season for cider is somewhat limited because you can only have it when you have apples around, and you can only have it fresh. Um, cider, I mean, it definitely sells better in the fall. It's always, everybody thinks of apple cider in the fall, but we do make fresh cider pretty much year-round. But we, you know, you can store some varieties of apples 12 months out of the year. You can have fresh apples the whole year, basically, and we do that. We, uh, we have what's called controlled atmosphere storage, where after the apples are picked, they're put in a room that has very little oxygen in the room. And because apples, you know, even after it's picked, it's still a living thing. It uses oxygen and gives off carbon dioxide. So if you don't have much oxygen, the apple, you know, doesn't ripen as fast. The ripening process uses oxygen, gives off carbon dioxide. And when you put it in a room without much oxygen, it just slows down the ripening. So the apple stays crisper, stays the same as it was when it's picked for a long period of time. Yeah, I was have, uh, even I was asking somebody on an earlier segment about storing just apples in my fridge and I found just a cool cloth over the top of the apples they've stayed crisper and and fresher kind of a little bit longer than I than I've been able to store in my fridge in the in the in the past. So it's exciting to experiment a little bit without about that like at home especially this time of year when you can buy a bunch of apples um, and then have them to enjoy for the rest of the winter. Um, well, it's it's hard to do it at home. Generally, you know, refrigerators are generally 
the humidity isn't high enough in a refrigerator to keep an apple for an extended period, the apple might keep, but it'll start to shrivel. It'll lose moisture, and it'll dry out. Um, in the storages we have, it's basically like a refrigerator. It's a great big room, but the relative humidity is, is almost 100%. So the, there's not water evaporating from the apple. It's not going into the air. And in a refrigerator, that's what happens. It only takes a couple of weeks sometimes for an apple in a, in a refrigerator to, to lose moisture. In a refrigerator, the door is open and closed numerous times a day. In our apple storage, when we seal that CA room, we close it in September or October and close the door, and that door isn't, it's only opened once or twice more for the whole rest of the year. Oh, wow. We open, it, we open it when we're ready to use the apples. So you don't have a lot of dry air going in. You know, it's just you, the humidity is high. You maintain the humidity high for the whole time they're stored, and then they keep well. That's basically the difference between a apple storage and refrigerator is mostly humidity. So I guess the takeaway here is leave it to the pros, go to the farmer's market at your leisure, and enjoy apples that have been professionally stored. Well, Ron, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Um, I do want to note for folks who want to learn more about the orchard, get up there for one of those runs. They also have you know, a whole garden center, a corn maze, a cider, and apples galore. You can find out more by visiting them at samscott.com. That's S A M A. S-C-O-T-T dot com. Ron, thanks so much. It's been a real treat. Okay. All right. You've made your way through another episode of The Farm Report. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in. As you know, we are a member-supported nonprofit uh, here at the Heritage Radio Network. So if you like the show, if you believe in our work, please consider kicking in a couple of bucks. You can become a sustaining member for just $5 a month. That's a great way to let us know that you're thinking about us, um, kind of trade in one morning coffee a, a month for a little bit of love to HRN. Also, lots of great shows. Um, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Visit the website, sign up for our e-newsletter. Lots of ways to stay in touch. Would love to hear from you. You can find me um, on Twitter. I'm Aaron underscore Fairbanks. Or shoot me an email, Aaron at heritageradionetwork.org. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.